Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing verbs like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Boo. Cold blood is with the Strauss game. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss, it's draws. I'm out of loss. I'm a brain. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week I've been thinking about the common good, and I've been thinking about the life of Dr. Larry Brilliant. I've been thinking about love, faith, and public service, and what living a life fully engaged looks like. I've been thinking about Dr. Brilliant's memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, The Impossible Adventure of a Spiritual Seeker and Visionary Physician Who Helped Conquer the Worst Disease in History. Welcome, Dr. Brilliant, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Ellie, thank you very much for having me. I'd like to start with reading a bit about what you've accomplished. It's a long bit. And then I'd like to talk a bit about who you are. So I'll start with what you've done. Dr. Larry Brilliant is a pioneering physician, visionary technologist, and global philanthropist, a medical officer for the UN's World Health Organization, and member of the central team in smallpox eradication in India. He was the first executive director of Google.org and currently serves as chairman of Skoll Global Threats Fund. He co-founded the SIVA Foundations, whose programs and partners have restored sight to more than 4 million blind. He has worked for four presidents, the G8, and chaired the National Biosurveillance Advisory Subcommittee. He also co-founded one of the first digital social networks, sat at the feet of Dr. Martin Luther King and under Buddha's tree. So that is a, a vast array of accomplishments. And I want to start our conversation today with a bit about the who you are part. And I'm thinking modern day Renaissance man. That's what I'm chalking you up as. <laughs> I'm wondering if you felt like an old soul when you arrived here on this planet um, with a life plan and you just kind of got busy doing as soon as you got here. Oh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> No, I felt like a ping pong ball on the ocean at high tide after global warming raised the seas. <laughs> I felt like I was just being buffeted about by the uh, the forces of time and uh, and that that period of time when I came of age uh, was a very tumultuous time. In, in a way, it's good that we're having this conversation right now. By the time this airs, there will have been an election. We will have had a contentious presidential race. People say it is a tumultuous time, but it it's different than the tumultuous time in the 60s, the 70s, when it was more of a divide that was generational. Young people rebelling against their parents' rules and, um, and the war in Vietnam and fighting for social justice and marching uh, for civil rights and the poor people's march. The, the division was maybe even greater, but it was in one's household, in one's family. It wasn't the way it is now, which seems to be uh, uh, class. You know, we're not supposed to use that word in America. We, we aspire to being a classless society. This election has proven how that's not true. This election has turned about uh, vitriol and divisiveness about race and gender and ethnicity and country of origin, all the things that we hoped would be put behind us with a declaration of independence that said all men are created equal, our aspirations. So, so this is a, a reminder a little bit that there have been other tumultuous times. We will grow from this. Hopefully, we will make our union more perfect and stronger. But uh, it, uh, it's a little bit, you asked me if I felt like I came out of the oven fully cooked and ready to go to work. And, and no, I was shaped by those forces of, of divisiveness. And I hope that young people coming through this moment in time have made a decision to choose love and community and togetherness and, uh, and understand that America is only as strong as we can be and as good as we can be when we believe that we're all in it together. So you had said my generation set out to change history, prove that right was greater than might, that we were a new kind of patriot. Do you feel like that's been lost 
And like that the battle was, it was generational then maybe rather than ideological and class, but was it more clear? Do you yes, feel it was better it was, defined? I, th I, I think it was better defined. Um, you know, we had, uh, I'm trying to think of the fellow's name. Uh, we had a very strong American Nazi movement, George Lincoln Rockwell. Uh, yeah, I think, it, I think that was his name. He was the leader of the American Nazi party. Uh, and we had... Uh, not just the embers of the Ku Klux Klan, we had the full-throated uh, Ku Klux Klan. Um, and on, uh, when I went to the University of Michigan, which was the place we had the first teach-in against the war, uh, it's where SDS was begun and uh, the Port Huron Statement was, was written. Um, we had an alphabet soup uh, of uh, acronyms, NAACP, CORE, SNCC, SDS, M-C-H-R-S-H-O, <laughs> even saying them reminds me of how tumultuous the times were. And um, I think that if you were a young person coming of age at that period of time, you were appalled by the war in Vietnam. You were just becoming aware that uh, uh, African-Americans had to drink from different drinking fountains, go to different schools, that there was Lester Maddox and George Wallace, who, who believed uh, with Throm uh, Thurman in, in uh, a kind of um, separatism that looked like apartheid. Uh, you wanted to find a way to dedicate your life to justice for all. I mean, it, it shouldn't have been revolutionary in the 60s and 70s to say you wanted for America only what the founding fathers said they wanted, which was liberty and justice for all, a nation that was not divided by race and class. And, and one more thing, Ellie, I think if you talk to people of my age, they'll say, we felt like there was a better world right around the corner. We felt almost it wasn't as kind of hippie-ish as the age of Aquarius, which was in its own way very lovely. But it was that there was an age of peace and justice, brotherhood, sisterhood, right around the corner. We could almost taste it, and we wanted to be part of it. We didn't always know how. We made lots of mistakes. We made one absolutely horrible mistake. We we were so against the war in Vietnam that we conflated the war and the warriors. But my generation treated these young soldiers who were coming back from Vietnam, many with PTSD, we treated them terribly. We didn't honor their service. We didn't honor their sacrifice. We didn't, we didn't know that they too were ping pong balls on the ocean and they were pushed into a war and it, it wasn't the kids' fault. The war was wrong, but not the warriors. So maybe maybe we that's made... the, the primary distinction, and we'll come back and talk about it, but the idea that you could had a vision, a clear vision of what the better world looked like, and you believed in it. And maybe that's the link that's been sort of been eroded over the last 50 years, and that, that has kind of led us back to this place where the same atrocities are occurring, and the same sort of small-minded mentalities of, of prejudice and, and uh, anger and violence. So we're going to come back to that. <laughs> we're going to go back to you, though, as a, as a young man, because you said in your book that I was the awkward, nerdy son of the smoothest, strongest man I'd ever known. And yet, anyone who reads your book um, would think that you led a life filled with confidence. You didn't seem to be stopped by technicalities, even in going to medical school, the fact that you didn't have an undergraduate degree. Um, were you a curious person by nature? Is that what drove you forward? Oh, I was relentlessly curious, I think. Um, but I was, of course, more than that, I was incredibly lucky. The Forrest Gumpian part doesn't escape me, and I realized that... That's uh, a, a great... I hadn't thought of that. That's, a, that's fitting. <laughs> I, I was just really, really lucky. Um, but yeah, I was 
incredibly curious and um, I wanted to, to learn everything. I read a lot, um, no internet of course, but nonetheless, uh, I remember when I was uh, 11, I, I bought a mail order copy. I saved up my earnings from selling bagels and newspapers and uh, sparklers on the 4th of July and I, I bought uh, a brand new set of the Encyclopedia Britannica and I remember putting the shelves in my, the bookshelves in my 11 year old's room and, and then I started reading the Encyclopedia Britannica. I think I got up to G. So don't ask me any questions about H, I, or J. <laughs> <laughs> and, and how about your dedication to helping others? Was that something that was sort of by nature or by nurture or that developed as, as your life went on? Um, I, you know, I think in those days we used to quote famous psychologists who would divide people into other-directed or inner-directed. Um, I was probably other-directed, and I was lucky enough that the others that I met, Ben Spock and Martin Luther King and Bill Fagey and so many of these wonderful people, known and unknown, famous and not famous, um, they they guided me on, on what I think of as the right path. I mean, meeting Martin Luther King when I was 17 and just knowing I'd never met anyone like that before who spoke about not just that there was a moral arc of the universe and it bent towards history. That, that's what has come down is what he said. But what he really said was, yes, there is a, a trend of history to move towards a world of more peace and justice, but you got to get off your ass. You got to jump up. You got to grab that arc and twist it and pull it with all of your effort and bring that arc towards justice. It ain't going to bend towards justice if you sit around and you watch and you're a spectator. And, and let me unpack that for just a second. That the world tends towards justice is a revelation that should make us excited and inspired, but that we have the possibility of playing a role in it, that the world is available for us to play a role in making it better. That was a revelation to me, and that there was a job that I could do, a nerdy 17-year-old kid. My dad was dying, and I felt like the world was not trending towards justice. I felt that I couldn't help him. That made me feel there was no role for me. And here's Martin Luther King saying, we've come out of slavery. The African-American communities come out of slavery. The white folks have a role to help make the world a better place. We're not mad. This is not a guilt trip. It's That's the way the world works. There's a chance for you to get involved in stopping a war and helping further the cause of of civil rights is a place for you and something to do that maybe that's the most wonderful gift that the world can give you or me is telling us that there's something we can do to make the world a better place for everyone there's there's a chance that the world is not as dark and ominous and hate-filled a place as Trump has described a dystopian world Martin Luther King was saying it's not dystopian, it is almost utopian, and there's a role for you to play in helping to make that kind of a world. That's the greatest news you can be given, I think. I thought that was one of your most uh, beautiful sentences in your book when you said King transmitted something, an intense feeling of righting wrongs, of bending the arc of history towards justice, using the weapons of love and peaceful civil disobedience. And that you were all in together. And, and something else you just pointed out now, that it gave you a role and it also gave you a clear path, right? You just mentioned all of those organizations that were revving up at the time. And so it wasn't difficult if you decided that you wanted to do something and you felt that you could do something to then do something in, in a really big way. You know, um, if you read anything about moral philosophy or ethics or you read or study 
any of the great religions, there's a constant struggle to define what is the highest good, what is the most noble good. And philosophers, you know, since 500 BC and even earlier, have described that as the summum bonum, the Latin words which mean the greatest good. What is the greatest good that you can do with your life? Uh, actually, listening to the way uh, uh, I think President Obama described Hillary's Methodist training, it's do the most good for the most people, the fastest way, and forever. <laughs> and that, that was that was her summum bonum, and it and it's a good one. And, Hers and, and wavy even, gravies. And wavy, wavy <laughs> actually was quoting. Uh, Ken Kesey, when he said, put your own little bit of good where it will do the most. But, but I know that for all of us, we get confused about what should be the organizing principle of our lives. How do we know what we can do that's good? And m many of these people we've just talked about, uh, Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, and many of the nonviolent movement organizers, they, they were all in some way followers of Gandhi, who articulated this idea of nonviolence, ahimsa. Uh, and Gandhi was once asked in the middle of the battle between um, uh, Indians who were trying to get independence from Britain, he was once asked, what, what is the, how will I know that I'm doing something good? What is the way that I will know that? And Gandhi said, I will give you a magic amulet, a talisman, that will always protect you so that you can only do good. But this amulet, it's not something you wear around your neck. It's not made of gold or silver. This amulet is an idea. It's an image. Before you take any action, think of the face of the poorest, the most oppressed, the most unhappy, the most discarded human being that you've ever met and ask yourself, is the act that I'm thinking of doing, will it benefit that person? Because Gandhi said, if you act in such a way that your action will benefit the least amongst us, it's very Christian. If you act in such a way that you will benefit the most vulnerable amongst us, the poorest amongst us, you will always be doing the right thing that's the magic amulet. It's, it's, it's a summum bonum. It's a great idea that if you act only insofar as your actions benefit the weakest and the poorest, the most vulnerable, the most oppressed, how can you be doing anything wrong? And that was the energizing principle behind the nonviolent civil rights movement. And that was the energizing principle behind Cesar Chavez and, and uh, the migrant farmers movement. And in many of the movements that we've seen, whether it's for gay and lesbian rights or women's rights or the rights of you know, immigrants, any of these movements where you're actually trying to help the poorest, not the richest, the weakest, not the strongest. Gandhi said you are protected and, and against doing anything wrong. And I think that that's something that, that I try to you know, I fail a hundred times a day, but I try to remember that. Daniel Goleman calls your book a primer on compassionate service and a guide to purpose-driven social action. And I noticed along the way you had a string of mentors and guides, and you developed these relationships, and you kept them throughout your life. And I'm just wondering how intentional that was and the effect that it's, it's had on you. How big a role did your guru in India, Maharaji, play in your life? Well, those are two different they questions. They are two different. Let, I realize <laughs> that. That's okay, let's start with the first one. Yeah. Well, because I was thinking of Benjamin Spock, and I was Dr. Benjamin Spock, and I thought, you know, you might not see it, but reading it from outside, the initiative that you took upon meeting him and then asking, could you drive him four hours so you could have the chance to talk to him? I mean, you might take that as for granted that that's a natural action and response, but I, I think it isn't for most people. And that's what I say about diving in so deeply 
that you did that. You said, you know what? I want to talk to this guy. I'm going to ask him if I can drive him somewhere and spend four hours talking with him and then spent, you know, having a relationship with him for, for a, a life, lifelong term. So, so, so now I have to tell you about his funeral and then we'll come back to answer right. question because, uh, when Ben died at the age of 93, he was living just outside of San Diego in a, a little town called La Jolla. And uh, he was a lifetime Episcopalian. Um, uh, and uh, he remarried, I think when he was in his 70s, to a, a wonderful woman named Mary uh, from Arkansas. She was a vegetarian, kind of a new age person. Ben while he was politically radical, was personally always wearing a three-piece suit and a watch fob, and he had gotten a, um, an Olympic gold medal for rowing uh, at Yale, described himself as a, a, an archetypal New Englander, crusty New Englander. Um, and for those who don't know, Ben wrote uh, Baby and Child Care, which was the second or third best-selling book in history at the time. I think there was the Bible and one other book, and then it was Ben Spock's book. But he decided that he wanted his funeral, whenever it would occur, to be a celebration. So he said there were three things that he wanted to have in his, in his funeral. One was that uh, Reverend uh, Sloan Coffin, who had been the famous anti-war crusader uh, at Yale during the 60s, that if he were alive, that he would celebrate uh, the services and he would wear a scarlet clerical robe. And second, that um, his wife Mary would dance on his hearse. And third, that it would be followed by a Dixieland marching band playing something upbeat about the future. So we 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 did celebrate his funeral at the, in, in La Jolla at the Siemens Church or uh, Sailors Church there. And then we all got out there. There weren't very many people there, maybe 50 or, or 100, not very many years old when he died that he had lost so many of his friends. And uh, we, we got out and the hearse began moving out and Mary indeed got on top of it and followed by his family and friends, and followed by a Dixieland uh, jazz band. However, it was also followed by a hundred television cameras. And as we wound through the streets of this very conservative town, La Jolla, and we were making a lot of noise, uh, the band was playing, Mary was dancing on top of, of the hearse, uh, two motorcycle policemen came up and stopped the procession and looked up to Mary and said, do you have a parade permit? <laughs> and she said, no. They said, well, you're going to have to stop this funeral. We won't permit you to go further. And she said, really? What will you do to me? He said, well, they said, well, we'll, we'll arrest you. She said, would you promise that you would arrest me? <laughs> and they looked at her and said, why? She said, because this would make my husband so happy to be arrested. <laughs> for doing a nonviolent act, please arrest me. And then she turned around and looked at these hundred <laughs> television cameras and said, and besides, I think they would love it. And these two policemen looked at each other and said, okay, carry on, <laughs> and they drove away. And I thought, what a fitting end to this wonderful, loving, peaceful protester, uh, a body in a clothes, of a conservative uh, New Englander. I was thinking about um, when you were leaving to go back to India, um, not on the, the magic bus, but the second trip to go spend time, you and your wife, with your guru. And you go and visit um, Ben Spock to sort of get I thought that whole whole piece of your life was so interesting that you went I mean that it seems like that wouldn't happen today but that you and Elaine on your way to India made these stops to say goodbye to people and and the last one on that was was Ben Spock and that you left in sort of an awkward way and it seemed to sort of um, complement the struggle that you talk about with um, the scene with Wavy Gravy and Trungpa regarding the 
the, the kind of battle between working actively in the world to bring justice and then withdrawing to commune with God. Did you feel settled on your choice at that point in your life to re- what might be seen as retreat back to India to focus on communing with, with God, with whatever that word means to you? No, I don't think I was settled at all. Um, you know, I, I grew up in Detroit, and then uh, I was sent to, I, in medical school, I did a, uh, a short one month, two months, I guess, three months, summer job uh, with the Office of Equal Health Opportunity. Medical students were given a chance to go and um, inspect hospitals, mostly in the South, for uh, discrimination. A new, a new law, the Civil Rights Act of 1965 had been passed. And so we were hired to go check for discrimination and because the federal government would withhold funds if hospitals were treating black people differently than white people. And uh, I got sent to San Francisco as part of that uh, for a month. And I landed in San Francisco in the middle of the summer of love in 1967. And that was not fair to do to a young boy from Detroit, Michigan. I had no inner resources. <laughs> I didn't have any tools to resist uh, the, uh, the hedonism and joy <laughs> that I found in San Francisco. So I yielded. I caved in. And I, um, I did what Oscar Wilde said. The only way to deal with temptation is to yield to it. <laughs> and I became a hippie. So I had been a... I'd been a kind of a nerdy math kid, and then I became an activist when I met Martin Luther King. And then when I I encountered the summer of love, I became a hippie. And that was a little bit of a betrayal of the the movement for social justice. And Ben had cajoled me, Ben Spock had cajoled me, why are you doing this? Why are you not marching? What, What is this stuff about living on a bus with a bunch of in a, in a commune. And I, um, I came back after that and I explained to, to him why I had done that, what I was looking for. But it was another step entirely to leave the United States. The war was still going on in Vietnam. My work as an activist had not ended. But here I was, I was going to go, go to India and live in a, in, a, in a monastery. And so I really was nervous when we went to see him uh, in his... Uh, uh, east side uh, New York Manhattan apartment uh, I, I was nervous that, that he would think that I was copping out or leaving the movement and I felt like that so, so it, yeah I, I, I was really unsettled about it um, but uh, my wife had uh, had an experience at this ashram and we negotiated the terms under which she would come back to see me in the United States and they included that I promised I would go back to this ashram with her and meet her guru. He wasn't my guru yet. Uh, and I was apprehensive that um, I was leaving um, a commitment that I had to, you know, to work on, on civil rights and, and against the war. So I was not at all certain. I mean, I got ready to go to India, but uh, when I got there, I was extremely uncomfortable with the idol worshiping and touching of feet and what felt to me uh, like a cult. And I decided I was not going to stay after I'd been there a week and I was going to leave and I was going to, it meant I was going to be leaving my wife. And I was really, really unhappy. So that stopping and saying goodbye to, to Ben Spock was more like trying to get his blessing. And he wasn't giving it. <laughs> he, he thought I was making a very big mistake, and, and I was worried that I was making a big mistake. So what shifted in that second week? In the ashram? Yep. You stayed. <laughs> I did happened. stay. Something I happened. Did stay. I, I, uh, I did stay. And, uh, I mean, it, it was because when I sat in front of, we called our guru Maharaji, which is a, it's a bit of a, a joke. Uh, Maha is big, Raj is king, G is dearly beloved, like you'd say, Gandhi G, dearly beloved Gandhi. And uh, so we called him great king, but it is exactly the word you would use in India to uh, call the waiter at a uh, restaurant or a person selling you tea. 
um, you would call him Maharaj. It, it's a, I can't explain the irony of that name very well, but it, it's like you'd call the least person great king. And so he took on the name Maharaji as a, it, it, it's the most self-deprecating name you could possibly have in India, but it sounds like it's a, you know, it's a arrogant name, but it's not. So we called him Maharaji. And um, after I had decided that I was going to leave, I packed up, I put my, Giraj and I divided our belongings in, into two orange backpacks. And I took my orange backpack, we got into a taxi from the hotel we were staying in to go down to the ashram. I told the taxi to wait in front of the ashram. I didn't think I'd be there very long. Giraj had said to me, well, I know you're leaving and and she was heartbroken, and I was heartbroken. And she said, but even though you're leaving, will you say goodbye to him? And I remember distinctly saying, I may be leaving, I may think this is a fraud, but I am not without manners. I will go and say goodbye to him. So we went down in the morning to say goodbye to him. And uh, the thing I, I wanted least of all about that experience was every one of these young Westerners who had come there was touching his feet. And I and and, and it was a, a temple filled with, with idols. And you know, coming from a Jewish or a Christian background, a monotheistic background, a biblical background, you can't abide the touching of feet and being surrounded by idols. I couldn't. And so we sat down in front of the table that he would sit on, and the villagers had gathered fruit and flowers to make what is called a mandala, a sacred image out of fruit and flowers. And in this case, the sacred image was one word in Hindi or Sanskrit, and that was the name of God, which in, in Sanskrit or Hindi in that community is Ram. And so it's, it's in the Devanagari script, but the whole table was just a, a beautiful collection of flowers and, and fruit and it said the name of God. And when we sat down, one apple rolled off of the, the bench and fell on the ground. And in my monotheistic mind, the name of God had become incomplete. It had been, uh, it had been detracted from because that apple had fallen. And I thought, well, you know, I don't like all these idols. I don't like touching feet. I don't like, but I also don't like that the name of God is incomplete. The name of God should always be perfect. So I reached down to pick up that apple, thinking, okay, I'm going to quickly put that here before this guy comes out, and I say goodbye to him, and I go to the taxi that's waiting. And I reached down, and I had the apple in my hand, and he seemed to burst out of the room, look at me, look at everything, and he stepped on my hand. He pinned my hand to the ground, and there I was doing the thing which given me a stomachache, touching his feet. And I was appalled, but I was also pinned down. And he wasn't that big. He, he was four, five foot four, five foot five or something. But it seemed like I couldn't get my hand out. And he just started to laugh, looking at me. But it wasn't a humiliating laugh. It was a loving laugh. And he said to me, what are you looking for? Why are you here? Have you been talking to God? Have you been asking for a sign? And that's just what I had been doing. But no one could have known that. I didn't tell anybody that. I didn't tell them what I'd been doing. And somehow the whole world seemed to freeze except for him. Everything else was frozen like a movie that had time lapse. And he was just frenetically moving around and looking at me and smiling. And he started playing with my beard and, you know, touching me on my face in a, in a way that felt like a father. Is he gotten off your hand at this point? <laughs> no, 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 no. My hand, I could not move. I, w I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have permitted that level of, um, of contact. I mm -hmm. couldn't get my hand up. And then I looked at him, and he turned his eyes away, and it was as if I had caught him looking at the future. I, I can't explain it. Mm -hmm. It's a mystical experience. These are very hard to explain. And, and I realized in that one second that he loved 
everybody in the world. He just loved everybody in the world. And even that didn't surprise me. That was sort of his job description. That's what a guru is supposed to do. I didn't know anything about Hinduism. I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I didn't understand India. But, but I knew that here's someone who really loves everyone in the world. And even that wasn't what made me stay. What made me stay is in that moment, as I had this flood of endorphins and all, all of these experiences flooding my, my mind, I loved everybody. Everybody. I loved the cops who had beaten us up when we were protesters. I loved the calculus teacher who I really hated at Michigan. I loved the, the people who didn't like the fact that we were protesting for civil rights. I wasn't mad at anybody. I loved everybody. And I'd never felt that. And Ellie, honestly, I didn't know that this body had a switch or a function this app had a function that I was able to love everybody. I'd never felt that before, but I knew what it was I was feeling. And I, I, I recognized that feeling because I'd been reading all these scriptural, these books, and people would describe having had an experience of universal love. I had no idea what that meant until that moment. And I, I, I know that my body, which was very uh, tight and tense, just began to kind of relax, and I started to cry. And I don't know why I started to cry. And then all the other young Westerners who'd kind of been on the, on the side of, of the temple watching this tableau, watching this happen, came up and hugged me and I realized that that was my initiation. The initiation isn't when you're given a mantra or a code to read, or the initiation isn't something that is intellectual. The initiation is when you feel that you are part of something bigger than you, when your mind and your heart turns to the questions that all of us want to know. Why are we here? What is our life for? How can we do any good? And those questions don't get answered in that experience, but they, they become possible to ask. And uh, I don't remember when it was I went out to the taxi and told to stay, <laughs> to leave my bags and go. I don't remember anything else that happened that day. Somehow I, I got back to the hotel that night with Girgin, unpacked, and I stayed, and I never left. And she had experienced that. Prior, I'm guessing, and why she was she so drawn to, to going back and bringing you back as well. She had. And, All right. And I want to make it clear, oh, these go are ahead. experiences without drugs. <laughs> no we, drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's good to preface that. All right. Well, we're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking, and I'm talking with Dr. Larry Brilliant about his memoir, Sometimes Brilliant, and about his life. And we're going to come back after the break and talk about saving the world. So stick with us. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Ketchum, community-supported radio. This is Ellie Newman, and you're listening to That Got Me Thinking. I'm speaking with Dr. Larry Brilliant, pioneering physician, visionary, technologist, and global philanthropist. And we're talking about his book, Sometimes Brilliant which those of us who've read it think it should be called Always Brilliant, but you know, look at that. So I want to talk a little bit about minor topic of saving the world. Um, you had said to really make a difference, it takes much more than goodwill. It takes a dedication to learn something to offer. To really change the world requires understanding and humility, doing the hard work of systematic thinking, a keen awareness of how a particular system operates. And this definitely seems to have been um, proven in your work in helping to eradicate smallpox, the longest-running epidemic of all time. And uh, you've got a TED Talk that is fabulous regarding a portion of that experience. But I want to talk about what led you to, um, after you were renamed Dr. America, um, what led you on this path? Uh, and what it was like. 
Well, I want to separate out the kind of intellectual um, understanding of systems and how you get things done and evaluate them um, from the emotional or spiritual part that helps somebody make that decision to get on that on that path. Um, so let's start on the systematic, because I thought that was incredible, that you visited every house, not you personally, but you and your group, visited every house in India for almost two years. You printed out two billion photos and, and went house to house. So, so uh, this past weekend, uh, my wife and I went to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore um, for the memorial service of D.A. Henderson who was the chief, the leader of the smallpox eradication program, and he passed away about six weeks ago. Uh, and DA ran the global program from Geneva, where WHO is located. And because we were there at this event with our old friends, some of them we hadn't seen in 30 years, who worked in India or Africa in the smallpox program, we were all telling our stories over and over again to each other. It was so wonderful. And and while many of those stories were, you know, something happened that was funny or implausible, most of them were, how did we learn that we needed to go house to house? Where did the idea of having a photograph of a child with smallpox that we would show to people? Because in India alone, there were 1,200 languages and, um, and different ways, different names for smallpox. How did we understand that we should do a ring of immunity around every case as opposed to mass vaccination? And where did the idea come from to do uh, surveillance at the temples to the deity of smallpox? And why was it important to feed beggars so they wouldn't go and travel when they had contagious smallpox on their face? And you know, all these thousands of little details that occurred as each one as if it were a scientific revelation in the middle of the program. And what DA had done and Bill Fagey and Nicole Grasset and these amazing giants of public health that I was privileged to work with, I was 15 years younger than most of them. I was the, I was the mascot. What, what they had done was constructed an organization where every new innovation was captured and now we call it best practices. We would find what worked in Bangladesh or in Nepal or in Senegal. And quickly, we'd operationalize that in all the other countries. So you had this dynamic organism of 150,000 people from 170 countries, and particularly Russians and Americans who at that time in the Cold War had 40,000 nuclear weapons aimed at each other, but we buried those 40,000 hatchets to work together and collaborated, and every new idea, we, we tested it, and if it worked, we deployed it. The managers who created that program were the most amazing managers I've ever worked with, and it's a testimony that the five people that I worked with, you said earlier, how did I seek out these wonderful mentors? I was lucky, and the five who I most closely worked with, D.A. Henderson, Bill Fagey, they each won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Nicole Grasset, who was my direct boss, was French. She won the French Legion of Honor. Isao Arita, a Japanese epidemiologist from Tokyo, won the Japan Prize. And the man who became like my father, who was the Commissioner of Health in India, Muni Inderdev Sharma, M-I-D Sharma. He won the highest award that India can give, Padma Shri. And that five people from these different countries were in the highest honor that their country can bestow upon them is just one of the many testimonials to how smart they were, how hard they worked, how they ran over obstacles like speeding trucks. But mostly, to your point, how they innovated, how they captured those innovations, how they tested them, and how they deployed them through an army of workers. And, and in India, as you say, we visited every single house in India every month looking for hidden cases of smallpox. 
And in doing so, we made 2 billion house calls. The scale of the program, even in today's terms, is amazing. And it was done with great management. So I, I, I think it's important to learn that if you decide you want to go and devote your life to making the world a better place, intentions are not enough. Good intentions cannot feed the hungry. You need food. You need a way to deliver it. You need a way to assess it. And that's the thing I think that, for me, the greatest lesson that I come away with in the smallpox eradication program, and we're seeing it in polio eradication, guinea worm eradication, is that it is the beginning, this feeling that you want to do good, that you want to be trained to do something that you can do good with. But then comes the really hard work, work that people don't see, the invisible work, the years of effort, and, and nothing great in my life without effort, without constant setbacks. That's what I learned from this. Well, and you had a huge setback, and, and I think it also bodes to the level of persistence when you felt you were just on the brink of eradicating it, and you pretty much had to begin again. Yeah, yeah. When, it, it, it's funny, when I, we, each of us gave a, a memory about D.A. Henderson at this uh, memorial, and, and I talked about that time when we had um, got ready to declare smallpox eradicated, we were going to have a global telecast. Uh, the state that I had been responsible for, Madhya Pradesh, was free of smallpox. Uh, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, a shower of new cases appeared throughout India. Uh, 1,200 villages. We, we went from almost zero to 1,200 epidemics all over the country. And they were all coming from the same place. They were coming from a town called Tatanagar. It took us a long time to figure out where they were coming from, but it was coming from an industrial town, uh, the town of the largest, the company town of the largest company in, in India, actually in Asia at that time, the Tatas. Um, and people would go there to get jobs, like Pittsburgh or Detroit in the 70s and 80s. There was always a job in Tatanagar. You could go there and, and get a job if you were you know, an unskilled village farmer. You could get on a train, go there and get work in the steel mills or in the coal mines. And then if you, unfortunately, if you saw somebody with smallpox or you, you were side by side with someone with smallpox, you would catch the disease and then you'd want to, you'd only want to go home to die. So you'd get on a train and you'd go back to your village and you'd bring smallpox back. Uh, and it was a great setback. Um, and the people who were running this company, I mean, coming out of the 60s, I thought that if they were, if this was a corporate town, they must be bad people. <laughs> but they, they were not. They were actually wonderful people. They just didn't know that there was a, an epidemic in their town. And we can talk about why they didn't know, but they didn't. And that they were reseeding uh, this terrible disease all throughout India and other countries. But once they knew... They shut down their steel factories, they closed down their coal mines, and they gave thousands of their workers all of their Jeeps, and for pretty much six weeks, the only product of the Tatas was getting rid of smallpox. They gave us, in, in today's terms, millions of dollars that they gave over to the World Health Organization to help eradicate smallpox, not just in their own company town, but all throughout India. Um, and that, too, was an inspiration because they also taught me the value of good management, of really skillfully getting things done. It wasn't just enough that they felt guilty or bad. It wasn't just enough they gave money. It wasn't just enough that they gave uh, Jeeps. They gave their entire upper management team to help us to figure out how to conquer smallpox. And within six months, we had finished so let's talk a little bit about early detection, early response, and how well we are doing at that and with cre having created an early warning system and utilizing technology to do so. Yeah, the, the, the key to eradicating smallpox was early detection, early response, and an early effective response. Uh, and now if you look at Zika or Ebola or bird flu or swine flu or SARS 
or any of these new threats that we are facing, and, and we are facing more and more um, of these diseases that have pandemic potential. And they're, they're almost without exception. They start off as a virus in an animal. We call that a zoonotic disease. And then they jump from the animal to the human. And they usually do that because of modernity, because we're clear-cutting the fields that bats were in, and then they move to a barn, and they share food with a pig, and then we eat the pig. That's one way that it, it travels. Um, but this close relationship between animals and humans in Africa last year, uh, Africans consumed uh, 700 million wild animals. What viruses did they have? Um, and so these, this whole host of new diseases that we're seeing uh, pop up at a time when we thought that science had conquered infectious diseases, at one level, we're more at risk. But we've also got the technology that modernity has given us. So we have tools we never had before to stop a pandemic from spreading. The outbreak itself is inevitable, but the pandemic is optional. It's not at all inevitable because we've got increasingly good detection systems. Uh, we've got things like HealthMap and ProMed and GFIN. We used to have Google Flu Trends and Flu Tracker. There's several dozen digital surveillance systems that help us find a disease the moment it jumps species. And it's easy enough to do that with these new modern tools that we have. And the, if you can find an outbreak within a week or two of the first case and respond with an effective uh, quarantine system, social distancing system, even if you don't yet have an antiviral or a vaccine, you can stop that outbreak in its tracks. The problem with Ebola is it took us six months to properly diagnose and detect that disease because of failures at WHO, failures of communication. If we fail to find these new outbreaks quickly, they will multiply so fast, not with Ebola, but if you look at uh, swine flu in 2008, um, there were probably 2 billion people who contracted that disease. But we're just really fortunate that it turned out to be a disease that had a very low death rate. And where do you think the link is in that chain? Because if you think, you know, that almost every person on the planet at this point has a mobile phone, um, where are we failing in reporting and reaction? Is it a matter of funding? Is it a, ra a matter of, of not valuing the need to take action? Um, I think it's different by country, by region. Uh, Thailand has a terrific system. Um, you know, uh, there's a disease called MERS that I, I'm, I'm sure people have heard of mm -hmm. this disease. It started in Saudi Arabia. People have talked about it being a disease of camels. It's probably a disease of bats. And camels have been accidental, uh, accidentally infected. But uh, there were two um, exportations from Saudi Arabia of MERS, one to Korea and one to Thailand. And you may recall that there were hundreds of cases in Korea, which is a really a developed country with a great healthcare system. Hundreds of cases from one importation of one disease. But when that same disease went to Thailand, there was only one case. And Thailand's not as rich as Korea. Why did Thailand do so much better in stopping that disease in its tracks? It's because they've got a great surveillance system. They've got a great system for early detection. It's called Dr. Me. It is a mobile phone app. It is spread everywhere. People have it. Uh, the Thais know because they are one of the most important uh, exporters of of chicken, of poultry. They know to be vigilant if any of their uh, chicken are dying. They know to watch their cows to see if they're sick and to report them into the agricultural community, into the public health community. And so Thailand stopped that outbreak in its tracks 
Unfortunately, Korea didn't. And the difference is vigilance. I would say that had we found and correctly diagnosed the Ebola outbreak uh, in West Africa, uh, it would have been the same scale as every other Ebola outbreak has been, which is 100 or 200 or 300 cases, not 10,000 deaths. The difference is how quickly do you find and identify the outbreak and respond to it? And, And maybe I could say it a little differently. I could say the gating variable is how fast you correctly identify the problem. And, and isn't that true for much of the things we do in life? The gating variable is how rapidly we make a diagnosis of cancer and what it is. It's, you can't determine the correct treatment until you first make the right diagnosis. Same thing's true with everything you do in, in business or in life. You have to correctly understand the situation that you're in and then make the proper action. So I think we're doing a really good job at early detection, but it isn't universally applied. And in countries that we should expect a better job, sometimes there are so many competing demands on resources. So, so for example, just one political, if I'm, if I'm allowed one political shot at the Republican Congress of the United States. You the are. Congress knew, I thank you. <laughs> I'm not angry, but... We have to understand that by uh, refusing to fund Zika at the moment in time when the larvae of the mosquitoes were vulnerable, so you don't have to use a lot of pesticides, and saying that they wouldn't fund it and they were going to go home uh, on one and then a second recess without funding it, that's the kind of irresponsibility that makes all of us have to pay in terms of more disease, more health consequences, and economic costs. We all know the expression, the stitch in time saves nine. We know the value of prevention and acting quickly. But Congress politically tied any money to, to go to Zika to closing down all of Planned Parenthood. It doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, these are totally separate issues. That brings us back to where we started, and I want to focus on that for the last few minutes of of our conversation, is this idea of the common good and a a common cause. I had a disheartening remark from um, someone I was in conversation with last week, and they said, oh, you know, I think the only thing that's going to bring this country back together again, I hate to say it, but is war. You know, that tends to be what brings everyone back together, and my heart just sank, and I said, "That, that can't be the answer. And you talked a little bit about our our current destabilized world and the problems with climate change, population growth, consumption, migration to cities, technology and globalization um, that can be wonderful or or, or hamper our our common cause. You had said you're an eternal optimist. Are you feeling hopeful and, and where shall we focus our efforts? Yeah, I have to be an optimist because I saw thousands of little babies die in my arms or in the villages around me from the worst disease, smallpox. And then hardly a year or two later, I saw the last case of smallpox. So I've seen what human beings in the middle of the Cold War, in the middle of a war between India and Pakistan, I've seen what we can do. I've seen how people can work in the United Nations with large armies of workers. So I'm always going to be optimistic about what we can do. Um, I don't think it takes a war to make us, like after the Second World War, we'd, we'd, we'd come to the edge of hell. And we said, okay, we're going to give up a little bit of our own sovereignty, each of these countries, and we're going to form the League of Nations, the United Nations, because we never want to go there again. And that memory is receding, and people think we need another war to remind us. We don't need another war to remind us. But we do need to see the public intellectuals, the inspirational individuals, the stories that gladden our heart of heroes, instead of having the oxygen taken out of the public square by people who yell the loudest and say the most vitriolic thing. We need to find the people who inspire us and gather around them and build communities. I mean, I I was so lucky 
that I met Martin Luther King and Ben Spock and the wonderful people in the smallpox eradication program and my guru. And, you know, it, the, we need to find people like that and surround ourselves with people who are using their precious lives to help everybody in the world. And I don't care whether it's a rabbi or a minister or a priest or a guru or a, a Buddhist teacher or a secular teacher who's trying to remind us and if we believe in nothing, we still can work to make the world a better place. And those are the stories that we need to celebrate and talk about and read about. And if we don't do that, where are we going to get our inspiration? I didn't make it on my own. I never would have been able to lead the kind of life that I've led unless I met these great people. And I think it of it as good luck. But whatever the reason is and however you meet people who are trying to put their little good where it will do the most, who are trying to find the summum bonum, the greatest way to do good, who are studying Gandhi's magic amulet, or who are just trying to do good in their community to improve the world, we need to find them, we need to honor them, celebrate them, and learn from them. I That's think a lot we- better than war. I think we found a person just like that. Um, a an, an large number of your friends and co- colleagues praised your book and you for living a uh, life extraordinarily well lived. And your book is extraordinarily well written. Um, and I just want to end with a, a push for that. And I'm going to use your father's words because I think they very fittingly encapsulate your book. It is a great story and it has the extra additional incremental benefit of being true. <laughs> so thank you so much for for joining me on the show today it's a really incredible honor to be able to speak with you oh ellie I've, i it's delightful i'm really appreciative thank you so much all right this is ellie newman on that got me thinking and i've been speaking with dr larry brilliant and this is kdpi 88.5 fm ketchum all right, thank you so much dr brilliant really really was a pleasure and your book was an incredible pleasure to read as well Ellie, thank you, and I'm pleased that you're 88.5. That's that's what KQED is ah, here in the Bay Area. All right, good. All right, bye bye. All right, thank you, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you. Bye bye.